Thank you for joining me. Today, we're going to be talking about how to contextualize mental health in the world around us. Mental health has become quite a different word nowadays. In the past, it meant something taboo or shameful, and nowadays, it's a label that's thrown everywhere. Let me give you a little insight into how we got here and why we've ended up in this place where mental health is something we celebrate rather than something we just consider. The treatment of mental health has drastically changed over the decades. At the very beginning of psychology and psychiatry, the way that mental health disorders were identified and treated was through institutionalization. Now, not everything was like you see in the horror movies of psych wards or the psychological thrillers that people seem to enjoy, but there is some element of truth to them. It's actually the foundation for how we still deal with severe mental health disorders. Now, clearly we've lightened up. We don't quite do all of the insane things that have been told in stories to psychology students and the public alike. Once we moved out of the institutionalization, there was a significant shift. We stopped seeing people as just a list of symptoms to treat. We started seeing them more as people with symptoms. That's when institutionalization moved to a therapy or treatment model. Now, we still had some of the same pitfalls as before, where we saw a symptom and wanted to treat the symptom, although we considered the person and how to help them. That's part of the foundation for therapy in itself. You see the problem, you work on it, and then you go on your way. The most recent branch of mental health treatment has taken this one step further where we start to consider the person themselves and their identity and how that interacts with symptomology. This is branched into education and advocacy, where we're no longer in the halls of an asylum. We're not sitting behind a one-way mirror observing a child's behavior, but we're speaking out more boldly and engaging with honest conversation about the things that are happening. This has moved the understanding and treatment of mental health out of just universities and doctor's offices into the public sphere, where mental health disorders, diagnoses, and treatment have become more and more accepted. What was once taboo is now openly discussed and sometimes even flaunted. I still remember a time when therapy was something you said under your breath, something that was only spoken about in private company. That has slowly changed over the years, I think for good and for bad, but what was once hidden has become openly expressed. Whereas before, men would be considered weak for going to therapy, and there's still some of that strain in there, a lot of the public outcry is for men to go to therapy, which is quite an odd shift from what was true or considered to be true even just a decade or two ago. Now that things are openly discussed, there's been an involvement with other ideas or spheres of influence. 
One of the ways that we've seen this influence show up is through research. Now, I am in a PhD program, and within the first year, the most significant thing that I learned is not from any of my classes, it's not from any meetings with professors. The greatest thing that I learned in the, my first year of my PhD program is that the vast majority of the population has no idea how to accurately interpret research. So the research that we hear about nowadays comes from an uneducated or an unknowing perspective. That misunderstanding of research has started to expand. So nowadays, when we talk about mental health, people will mention rates of anxiety or depression. I think one of the biggest offenders of all of this is something like autism. And I'll sit on this one for a minute because I think it's rather interesting to understanding how mental health has developed in our world and country and state and city conversation. For those that are unaware, autism rates and diagnoses of autism, which is now considered autism spectrum disorder, have been rapidly increasing. Now, someone who is unaware of how research works, how diagnoses work, could see the fact that autism rates are increasing in front of them and start to wonder, what is causing it? My God, is there something in the food? Is it how we're treating people? Is it that people are bullying more or parents are more inattentive? It is true autism rates are increasing, but not for any of those reasons. The fact of the matter is that we've expanded criteria as psychologists and psychiatrists. So what was once considered just odd behavior has been lumped in with autism spectrum disorder. So are the rates increasing? Yes. Is autism increasing? No. And this is what I mean by interpreting research well. When I talk with clients and when I speak in public about research, and especially what I learned in my first year of my PhD program is that in the public sphere, we talk about scientific data as if we know what we're talking about, when in reality, we could be missing things that are incredibly important. So this inclusion of research, incredibly helpful. It has given a light and a voice to a whole bunch of people who don't quite understand what's going on with them, but find connection in this information. And this is where that advocacy and that public education comes into play. It makes a grand difference to hear from someone, either a friend or a family member, or maybe in a speech or a movie, talking about what depression is. It can open the window for someone to see out in the distance of hope for the future. But what was initially a great idea and something that helped very many people has become much more complicated. You see, the expansion of public discourse, along with this misunderstanding of research, has started to create some serious issues of our understanding of mental health, primarily through social media. 
Now, I'm not going to go on some grand tirade. I don't think I'm quite old or crotchety enough for that yet. I mean, give me 20 years and maybe if I'm still doing this podcast, I'll have a whole episode about how social media is the worst thing that's ever happened. But for now, it's important to not underestimate the impact that social media has had on our understanding of mental health. The greatest impacts or the greatest sources of impacts for these are TikTok, Twitter, now X, and YouTube. These have been incredibly important in our understanding of mental health because it gave anyone and everyone a platform to speak. From an objective perspective, that's great. There's an open stream of dialogue. The problem is the truly educational, the honest, the accurate understanding is not often the one that gets the most clicks. And so in social media, you are rewarded as a content creator for receiving feedback, support, or engagement. TikTok, Twitter, and YouTube are especially oriented for this. Let's move to how mental health has been affected. Where it was once education is now something that anyone and everyone can talk about. And most people speak as if they have some sort of authority on it because they've experienced it, which is honestly most of the time not the case. Now, I'm not on social media nearly as much as many people that I know. I quite honestly just scroll through Facebook just to see drama now and again and to see if family members have posted any pictures that are interesting. But something drastic has happened over, I would say, maybe the past five years most significantly. As a therapist, I've started to have to explain to my older colleagues that social media is significantly driving the public's understanding of mental health, particularly that of young people. Something absolutely fascinating has started to happen where clients and patients will come and speak to their therapists or their psychologists or psychiatrists, seemingly knowing more about a diagnosis than they do. It's not completely uncommon nowadays, especially working with young people, to hear them come in and explain this whole reason why they believe they have a certain disorder. That they can give you examples, and they've even looked up the criteria. And even if they haven't looked up the criteria, they've heard it from somewhere, and they can describe it and say that, well, it's their lived experience, so they feel that it's true. This can be vastly impactful for therapists and any kind of mental health professional because our main goal is to help people. And if those people are coming in telling us they have a problem and they think they know what it is, we better have good reason to tell them they're wrong. And these people seem to have a ton of reasoning behind what they believe. So over the years, I've started asking more and more questions about people's diagnoses. Where did they come from? Do they have documentation? Not that that's always the most accurate thing in the world, but at least they would have seen someone. Now, I can honestly hear the criticism coming through the microphone here. I well understand that 
many people have gone to diagnostic appointments, they've gone to treatment, they've gone to therapists, and their diagnosis was wrong. I get that. That is a perfectly valid reason to question diagnoses and treatment. You have every reason to wonder if something is wrong or if something should be different. Social media has changed this, though, to where diagnostic criteria is self-imposed. And the way that we understand mental health nowadays is through the lens of how we personally experience something. It has little to do with exactly how long we've been experiencing it and more about how we perceive it. And so when it comes to young people especially, one of the biggest problems that I have is self-diagnosis. People come in and they tell me they have things like OCD or they wonder if they're bipolar, which back when I was younger was not completely taboo, but it wasn't something you'd be thrilled about. But now it can almost seem like a rite of passage or a way to better understand yourself. This social media influence has started to affect the way that even providers start to treat clients and patients to where they could be overdoing diagnoses for clients that don't actually qualify. What does this have to do with the general conversation? We can reach back into things like research. Research studies are conducted on large scales when it comes to anxiety and depression. And how those studies qualify their criteria is incredibly important. I'm give you an example. There is a difference between a research group asking for documentation for someone having an anxiety disorder and just asking someone if they do. The first one requires more work, often requires money, transportation, time, the second one is how someone personally identifies. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but multiply that problem over thousands of people that respond. So instead of having a 1% or 2% prevalence rate of people with a specific issue, it becomes 5 or 10%. And all of a sudden, we have an issue in our country with rising anxiety and depression. And quite honestly, we might. On a realistic note, I, I do think that there's a lot of credence to the idea that anxiety and depression is increasing. However, we have to be careful because what if the data we're looking at is self-reported? And what if that self-report comes through the lens of things like social media? It terrifies me to think that influencers, content creators could inadvertently be driving an increase in our understanding of psychological issues because of things like self-report. I don't need a psychologist or a psychiatrist or a therapist to examine every single person in a study. That's not the point of this. The point is to start to pay attention to where our data is coming from. So our research, I think, can start to be put into a little bit of question. And I've started to wonder if we've become too comfortable with mental health. What was once a descriptor of behavioral symptoms 
changed into a sense of identity, which then changed into a medal people seem to wear. Give you an idea of what this looks like. Initially, we'll use something like autism. We'll say that this person is autistic. That would be the identifier. The identity would be someone saying, I am autistic. Then they could break out of that a little bit in a healthier way and say, I am someone who experiences autism. That would, I think, be a healthy understanding of symptoms, separating them from the identity of the person themselves. That's vastly different from the trend we're seeing today, where instead of just understanding people's behavioral patterns, instead of just knowing how our brains tick compared to these diagnoses that we've come up with, people proclaim it. They talk about being things like neurodivergent, and I'll talk about that in a second because it's an entire nightmare of conversation around the psychological community. But what was once something that people understood about themselves and was useful information has become a medallion, something that they shine in front of others to gain a sense of voice or identity. And that's terrifying. Let me go to the neurodivergent thing. It's a part of this interesting phenomenon where there are psychological criteria for a diagnosis or symptoms that someone experiences, and then others co-opt it and use it for their own. The term neurodivergent was initially something for autism. Their brains and their thoughts work differently. I've worked with autism before, and the people that I've worked with have been great, but without an understanding of the neurological differences in someone who has autism, I would have been doing a terrible job and been completely ineffective into helping them grow and change their lives. So neurodivergence originally was this idea of their brains seem to work differently, but has been taken on as one of those medallions, one of those badges that people wear where now the word has lost all meaning. Neurodivergent nowadays is an I'm special sticker, which sounds harsh, but you can only see so many posts, so many advertisements, so many groups. And you start to wonder if neurodivergence is this common, is it really neurodivergence? Or is it just people wanting to be special and different? Again, this is the Bold Lines podcast. I'm just going to tell you exactly how I feel. That's a huge concern of mine where mental health has become something so exciting for people that they use it to diversify themselves. They use it to give themselves credence for what they believe, when in reality, they're not that different. I will tell you, by and large, all of us are pretty normal. Now, we can have some quirks, but it seems as if people have gotten this idea that they are some grand difference from the population around them and deserve special treatment. I would say it's quite the opposite. If everyone's special, no one is. If you know where that quote came from, you should share this podcast because that was a deep cut right there. But if everybody's so gosh darn special, 
then what's the point? If everyone's neurodivergent, then no one is. Neurodivergent was meant to be a specific difference, not a general one. Now, I know I'm harping on a simple idea here. I'll give you a short other example and then spread it out for us. Another one of the common ones that I see nowadays is something like narcissism. Here's so many times, and I see posted so many times, how to deal with narcissistic blank. Okay, as someone who has worked with people with actual narcissism, which I don't exactly call it that anymore, but people with specific personality disorders that express that, I promise you it's not your ex. Like, I, I, I can almost guarantee that your ex whatever was not a true narcissist. They're just selfish. Because of this expansion of ideas, now the general public finds a bludgeon. They find a way to make themselves feel different and special. And I'm going to pretty much guarantee you with a high success rate, with no information at all, the vast majority of people listening to this are not narcissists and have never been in a relationship with a true narcissist. And very few people are actually neurodivergent. And this is why I have created this episode. When we talk about mental health nowadays, I've started to wonder how much of it is mental health issues that are diagnosable and how much of it is just lonely people looking for connection. I'll tie that in with one of my favorite things to tell clients. When they tell me that they feel like they might be depressed and we come to find out that there's a good reason for it, whether it's due to loss of family members, friends, or a sense of self, I tell them, good, I'm glad you're depressed. You should be. To be depressed is to be human. You don't need a diagnosis for that. When people tell me they're anxious and overwhelmed and they don't know how to handle things, when we come to find out that it's terrifying and that they don't know how to handle their future but there's hope, I say, I'm glad you're anxious. It means you're breathing. It means that life is worth living. So when it comes to things like mental health, we have to be very careful how much of what we're experiencing and what we're seeing in the world is just the human experience? How much of it is just due to problematic family dynamics or personal beliefs? And how much of it is actually a neurological problem? I would argue the vast majority of it is from lonely people, from broken hearts who feel isolated, from many people who haven't felt whole and loved. You don't need a diagnosis for that. I would argue that there's so much more to be offered than to carry around a weakness that you wear as a badge of honor. Let's figure out what to do with this because I never want to leave an episode with people feeling terrible. If you're wondering if you are one of those people that I was talking about using mental health terms as a way to navigate the world and differentiate yourself, start asking yourself how much of what you're experiencing is human. Is it really different than what other people experience? Or is it just the details are slightly different? No one's going to experience all of the things that you have. For better or for worse, you're the only one that experienced exactly what you did. 
but you're not the only one to experience something like that. And if you don't allow that to be good enough, you will be forever glorified and on a holy high chair, and you will be alone. And so I would ask you to consider how much of what you're experiencing is real and others can relate to. How much of it do you actually need professional help with? And if you do need that professional help, if there's something neurologically faulty, if there's something so severe that it's inhibiting your ability to interact in the world, absolutely get help. Get some professional help that can give you guidance and direction, but never, ever wear that diagnosis, even if it's accurate, as something to be thrilled about. You shouldn't be ashamed of it either, though. Mental health diagnoses are simply descriptors. They're not identifiers of a person. And so for anyone that's listening, whether you are the overly concerned with mental health or whether this is your first time diving into all of these things, I would hope that you see the humanity in the world. You see hurting people. And that diagnoses should only be descriptors. And when people wear them, something to be proud of, they're deeply hurt, and that's not a diagnosis. I hope that everybody finds someone who can hear them out and challenge them, not just tell them they're perfect the way that they are. Find people who will help you grow and help others do the same. Thank you for listening today. If you feel the need, you can leave something in the tip jar. Um, I hope that you share this podcast with other people so that they can help grow themselves, that they can support others, and even provide some insight to those that might not be able to afford therapy.